This week's episode of Inside the Hive is brought to you by Warner Brothers Television hit CBS comedy Young Sheldon. From the people behind The Big Bang Theory, executive producer Chuck Lore and Steve Malaro. IndieWire says that Young Sheldon excels at capturing human heart, while the Daily Beast raves that Young Sheldon has enough heart, creative independence, and integrity to stand alone. And Yahoo TV calls Young Sheldon uncommonly well-acted and cleverly conceived with the casting coup of the year. Ian Armitage's performance as a nine-year-old Sheldon Cooper is exceptional. For your Emmy consideration in all categories. All right, welcome to Inside the... You know, it's not Inside the Hive this week, it's Inside the Swamp, because we're in Washington, D.C., and I have a very special guest, Robbie Mook. Robbie... Welcome. Well, it's my pleasure to be here. Does that make me a swamp creature, though? Is I that, think I think implication? you were already a swamp swamp creature <laughs> long ago, and uh, just being on this podcast helps helps it a little more. Um, can you give our listeners a brief overview of who you are and how you got? to this very bizarre-looking conference room we're in right now? <laughs> yeah. Well, I came here this morning in an Uber, but uh, uh, I am originally from Vermont. Um, I got involved in politics there at a very young age, uh, just volunteering in high school. And I can't tell you exactly why, actually, because my parents weren't especially political. They voted and so on. But um, I uh, was active there, uh, worked on some campaigns, and then actually when Howard Dean decided to run for president, that's when I got more involved in, I guess, what you'd call national politics. Um, Did his campaign, went on to the Kerry campaign. Uh, ran campaigns in Maryland, Virginia, um, and then I worked on Hillary Clinton's first primary, um, and I ran Nevada, Ohio, Indiana for her. I was actually in Puerto Rico for a while, um, ran Jean Jaheen's campaign for Senate. I was at the DCCC for a few years doing house races, and uh, ran Terry McAuliffe's campaign for governor, and then ran Hillary Clinton's campaign for president. So it was a long run. It's a long <laughs> run, and, and, and so you are now not doing politics. Correct. Done. Uh, does it feel good not to be not to be doing it? Feels it feels really good. I, you, I won't lie. Do you sometimes drive by the White House and think, "Oh my God, is that really that guy's in there, the, <laughs> the, the TV reality star?" You know, the, he is so omnipresent every day. I don't. I, I don't. Honestly, are you at the no? Are you at the point where you actually re- believe he's like? I I still have the, those moments where every day where I'm like, "Oh, this is surreal. He's not really the president of the United States." I think the result of the election was was uh, speaking of omnipresent was so omnipresent for me for so Got long. It. I think I, I think I accepted it a long time ago. Um, you know, I also think it's it's ironic being inside the campaign. I think we had perhaps a better sense than other people of how he could win. So the idea that he could win wasn't, you know, I think we certainly expected that we would win the election, but the idea that he could win wasn't totally, uh, you know, absent. So so let's go back to the election. And we spoke pretty soon after it. Um, and it was be- we spoke before the Russia stuff had become the Russia stuff. And I remember you telling me a story about how when you guys first found out that the Russians were were meddling and you got you know you got pretty nervous you were taking different routes home and things like that tell us that story yeah so we well first of all before we knew about anything 
I think we knew, and and we knew what everybody else knew, that Donald Trump had this bizarrely cozy relationship with the Russians, both from a business standpoint, but then, you know, he was saying pretty friendly things about Vladimir Putin to start. I get a call one day from the DNC's lawyer saying, hey, the DNC was actually hacked, and they believe it was the Russians. They're, they're, they're certain, essentially, that it was the Russians. Um, they've been in there for a very long time, and the assumption is they have everything. And in fact, at that time, there was an assumption that they had voicemails. They potentially had taped all the phone conversations because they used voiceover uh, IP phones. So that was really scary. And immediately the assumption on our part was this is this is not espionage when we when we got the campaign up and running and were going through our own cybersecurity strategy it was be, it was essentially built around espionage because the chinese had broken into the obama and mccain and and i i don't know if they got into obama they certainly got into the romney campaign in 12 but they hadn't released the emails you know they were just trying to figure out what was going on um, we f- we definitely felt like this was different, you know, because of that cozy relationship. And, um, you know, at the same time, if you go back and look at what the Russians have done in other countries, the Ukraine, in terms of actually trying to hack into the election, quote unquote, um, uh, you know, the assassinations, everything they were doing, it, it was just scary because we, we just didn't know. We didn't know which playbook, w- w- you know, we were in. Um, and the, I think the biggest thing that we were paranoid about at that point was just communicating because we had to assume that they were in the campaign as well. As far as we know, they never actually got into HillaryClinton.com, you know, the, into that domain because, uh, because of security measures we'd put in place, but we just assumed they were, you know, listening to our phone calls, doing our emails. So looking through your underwear drawer. Yeah, exactly. Right. And you, in fact, I remember reading at the time stories about, um, you know, things they'll do to harass people, breaking into their apartments, rearranging the furniture. I mean, there's all kinds of things. So like I said, we just didn't know which playbook we were in. And then I think the biggest frustration was the Washington Post in early June said very clearly and this was the first story about the DNC being hacked. This was the Russians. And then when we were out there pointing this out, hey, the Russians did this. The Russians are very cozy with Trump. Trump, in fact, you know, right after his convention was out there saying, hey, Russia, you know, dump out all the emails you have. Yeah, I remember that. Um, they changed their platform to remove aid to the Ukraine. I mean, it was just, to me, it was it was jaw-dropping what was happening and nobody seemed to care, you know. So when you time. look at it now, what, do you two questions? One is why? Do you, what's what's what do you think is behind it all? Do you think that they really do have something on Trump that is, you know, that it could be potentially damaging to him? Um, and when you look at that's the first question. The second question is when you look at 2018, are you worried that the that the Russians are going to have an impact? Yeah. So on your first question, I believe they have they definitely have something which is a financial grip on Trump's on the Trump organization and Trump's financial well-being. I think that's certain and that's that's essentially been proved. Um like which, you're talking about loans and Yeah, I think he is financially intertwined with them. You know, he's a real estate guy in New York 
and he has uh, properties, for example, in Panama City. These are places where Russian oligarchs go to, you know, buy, quote unquote, buy real estate. But really, it's a it's a place to launder their money. And now we're looking at his lawyer, Michael Cohen, and the deep relationships he had with the Russians. Um, I, I just think they could make life really hard for Donald Trump. Um, so sure, they might have so-called compromise on him. There's the allegations about the P tape and everything. I, I don't know. I mean, who knows on that stuff? But, I, but to me, in a way, that doesn't matter because we know that they have a hold on his financial future. And we know that's important to him. On your second question, I, I, what I believe is has been happening and is continue, continuing to happen now, and our national security experts have said this, is that the Russians are seeking to influence the public discourse around the election through social media, right? So we've seen with the, with the NFL kneeling controversy, we certainly saw with the Las Vegas shooting. Charlottesville. Uh, Charlottesville, right, that the Russians are actively, and this is what's really important about this, they are playing both sides. They're trying to pull us into polar opposite ends of the spectrum. And we see, we've seen based on everything that's been put out from the congressional hearings, they, they go to the left and to the right. They, for example, they were infiltrating Bernie Sanders supporters' Facebook groups, right, to spread rumors about Hillary Clinton. Um, so I believe that they are doing that now, or and, and there's evidence uh, uh, to that. Um, what, I, what I don't know, but I think we need to be worried about, is what they might actually do with the election. And I, you know, I think there's, I think our, our concerns have sometimes been too narrow in two respects. The first is our election system is much more complicated than machines, and we tend to focus on the machines and the paper ballots and so on. You're By the way, you're talking about the actual voting, correct? Yeah. Well, well, right. But but our election system, the voting process goes far beyond machines. So we have voter registration databases. We have these e poll books, which are the actual um, devices used to look you up when you come in to vote. We have the results reporting system. We have the websites that host those results at night. I actually think if I were the Russians, I would try to disrupt those two ends. They're a lot easier to get into, and they'll create more chaos. Um, and so I don't know that they're ever seeking to like actually um, get a certain outcome in the election. I think they'll do everything they can to help Donald Trump win re-election. But I think their greater interest is to sow doubt in the election process in general and doubt in democracy. Um, so I, I think, yes, let's talk about securing machines, but there are much more vulnerable parts of the system I don't even think we're talking about. Do you think that there's a world in which we as Americans, I mean, the thing that's been, the thing that's so frustrating is, uh, you know, from the media aspect, uh, you know, and you know this better than anyone, the way the New York Times and the Washington Post and places like that covered the emails, uh, Hillary's emails, uh, front page stories and so on and so forth. When you think about what is um, uh, what's happening now, you know, when you look at what happened with Macron in France, when that when the, the Russians hacked his emails, the media said, we're not going to we're not going to publish them. Granted, there was a blackout, but they still could have done it. And do you think that that all of this discourse is going to continue to to drive a rift in America? Or is there going to be a point where we're like, wait a second, guys, this is crazy. We shouldn't be doing this. Yeah, this is, this is a really interesting question. So I think 
the, the the media blackout definitely helped in France. I also think the fact that everything that had happened in the U.S. was was pouring out, and there was there was an awareness, and the issue was being treated seriously in a way that it just hadn't been during our election, right? And I think there was also a sense in Europe that Donald Trump getting elected was a consequence of all this stuff happening. So I think the media was restrained and the electorate was also educated there that, hey, the Russians are going to try to mess around. So if a bunch of emails come out, that's why. So I think all that helped. But I do think the the economics of our media are different, right? So in the U.S., um, there's so much more media and the incentive is so much more based around clicks and you even hear reporters saying this now, if it's out there, I have to report on it. Yeah. You know, that that outlet's not going to sit on their hands. I can't sit on my hands. So, and I, I'm not going to sit here and disagree with that economic reality. There's a lot of realities we have on campaigns that people get upset about. And I say, well, there's nothing I can do about that. Um, I do think... I do think at the very least, the media needs to, and it would be great if they could do this collectively, needs to have a conversation about if you're going to report on these things, how do you at least provide the reader with good perspective? So one thing we never even got on our campaign that I think we at least need to do this time is most reporters wouldn't at the top of the story acknowledge these materials were stolen and released by Russian intelligence. I think if stories just began, if Just if it had said that, it would have made a massive difference. I think it would have made a huge difference. And we couldn't even get that because it was seen by us as did, a campaign as an excuse. Did you try to t- talk to the reporters? Reporters that had sure, written, and they yeah, just were yeah. like, "No way." Yeah, I think again, it was seen as an excuse. It was seen as spin. And 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 here's one thing I'll say about this: there's this dangerous false equivalence that happens. So it's like my side, the Clinton side, is this was stolen and that's bad. The Trump side is the ha, the truth is coming out, and those two things are treated the same. And I think what reporters need to f- like figure out is no, what's really what is really the center of gravity here, and and let me plant my flag there, and not just treat what each campaign says the same. Have you ever spoken to any of the reporters who did write about the emails um, and questioned if they kind of feel any remorse about it, <laughs> um, or do reporters not just not feel remorse? Uh, uh, here, I am a bad person to ask that question to because I, I'm perhaps too self-conscious about my own biases and my own role in the situation. I don't know that I'm the best person to challenge them on that, if that makes sense. Got it. I do remember one conversation I had with some reporters. There was a debrief at Harvard that happens after every presidential debrief. I was there, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. And I remember gaggling with some of them afterwards and saying, the thing that I'm annoyed about is that you all wrote so much about James Comey's letters about Hillary, but I still have seen no reporting about James Comey's decision and how he arrived at this totally unprecedented and and protocol-breaching decision. And I remember seeing, I don't know, whatever, I could sort of see it in their eyes, some people saying, oh, I guess we do need to do it. And I think subsequent to that, there's been a lot more tension, sadly, because of what Trump did. But I, I definitely think people are considering it. I just, I guess my only message to reporters would be, um, 
don't feel defensive. Like, yeah. I, I just want us all to get this right next time. This isn't about, like, the past is the past. We all made mistakes. Let's just get it right in the future. You know? So speaking of next time, we've got the 2018 election coming up and then the 2020 presidential election. Uh, and the Russians are clearly, as you said, going to do whatever they can to sow discourse, mess things up, and, and so on. Do you think that they are going to to be a little bit more reserved for 2018 so that they can use their firepower in 2020 or do you think that they're they're equal uh, they're of equal importance uh in their their plan to uh to sow chaos in this country well what's interesting about all this is uh, as you said the goal is to sow chaos and for putin it, it makes him look stronger the more engaged he is, if that makes sense. So I used to think, well, they've, they kind of, they kind of got ahead of their skis. So now they'll pull back. It's certainly not possible, at least we're told by Facebook to go and spend rubles from Moscow on political ads. So they'll have to be sneakier, although I'm sure they can figure out That's a way to probably 5 million ways for puppets. them to figure out. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, I, I guess my, my take right now what I've been warning Democrats about is I think they will be definitely be active and they will focus on dividing Democrats in our primary and focusing us on divisive social issues so that we don't have a chance to either make our indictment of Donald Trump or they won't give us a chance to explain to voters that the, the, the whole of the electorate, what's in it for them. I think they'll try to keep us focused off, you know, in a niche. And Donald Trump, I think they will it's not like they'll have a conference call with Donald Trump to figure it out, but I think I think <laughs> you they never know. Yeah, who knows? They, the alt right and Trump will all be their energy will all be directed in the same direction, which is to control the narrative of the Democratic primary. If Democratic candidates are simply reacting to Donald Trump every day, which I think is very likely, that's a huge win for him. So when you think about the 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 end of the 2018 election uh, and going into 2020, it, there's no incentive for Trump to ensure that nothing gets hacked, that the Russians don't do anything. In fact, there's an incentive for him to look the other way. What can someone do about that? Is is there anything that we can do, or do we just have to throw our hands in the air and just hope for the best? Yeah, it's interesting. I think law enforcement and the national intelligence community is trying to do something, but or they're at least trying to understand the problem. The I think the biggest, um, I was going to say the biggest mistake, but I think the thing that most people would agree we should have done differently is that the national is that the the, the intelligence community should have come out earlier in 2016 and said, "Here's what's going on." They didn't do it until October. There was a lot of politics around that. It's easy to point fingers. I'm not interested in doing that. But if that's the most important thing, I think that's the thing that Trump will stop. So I don't know how effective law enforcement or the or the intelligence community will be able to be writ large to 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 blunt the influence of these operations. One of the things that, that uh, you've talked to me a little bit about before is that you are concerned that not only will Russia mess with the election, but they will also do the same thing with corporations. Um, I wrote a story for Vanity Fair a few weeks back about, um, it's in the magazine this week, about uh, Russia, Russian Chinese hackers, North Korea and so on, that are um, 
stealing secrets, you know, embedded in Silicon Valley and, and so on. Uh, talk a little bit about what, what's going on in the corporate world with, with, with all this espionage. Yeah, and one thing you just hit on, which is so important, is this isn't just Russia. Russia it yeah. is North Korea. It is China. Iran, I actually think Iran probably has the greatest political stake now. Um, they're probably anti-Trump in their posture, but nevertheless. Is, it, is Iran going to start copying Russia and doing the same thing? I think they could because... You know, the way to think about this is cyber capabilities are cheap and relatively easy, right? A few people who are well-trained can go do this stuff. And we've seen the Iranians are incredibly capable in this space. The North Koreans incredibly the capable. The North Koreans, there was a hacker contest and uh, with thousands of hackers recently, and and uh, the North Koreans won. Yeah, right. So it's... And, and, and it's not by mistake. They started investing in this because it's a way to gain an advantage, in an asymmetric situation, right? We will always have more powerful weapons. We will always have more troops, but they can go in and attack HBO and get us, you know, chasing our tails for weeks on end. Um, they can jam up our political process. So that that's why this is going on. As it relates to the corporate space, I think you're touching on something that's really important. You know, intellectual property has been stolen for years and years and years. And what I wonder about is at the point that you know, not everything, but a lot of what can be stolen has been stolen. Um, if these if these companies in those countries are looking to gain advantage, one way to do that is to do to Amazon or General Motors what the Russians did to the Clinton campaign, steal information and leak it out to damage somebody's brand, right? Particularly in the corporate space, that brand is so important. And in these countries, the government corporations, quote unquote, the national security and intelligence apparatus, these are all kind of one thing in many cases, right? So you could have the government putting the throw weight of their cyber capabilities behind an effort like this in a way that we can't even imagine. And this is where I agree, you know, Mark Warner and other people are saying, we're, we're just behind. We're not thinking about we're not leading in this space. We're just reacting. And I worry we're going to start reacting to worse and worse incursions. And so the NSA and places like that are not are not at the forefront of this? It's Well, I think there are two issues. One is we have sort of a black and white view of warfare, so to speak, which, by the way, I think is a is in many ways a good thing. But what that means is, you know, we we don't consider ourselves at war with an adversary until there's bullets flying or something kinetic happening, right? For the Russians, warfare is a whole spectrum. So infiltrating our information space, influencing the narrative during elections, that's part of warfare. And they're doing it all the time. And I don't think we are set up to manage that incoming on an ongoing basis. And furthermore, in our doctrine, you know, we're we're not doing to them what they're doing to us. Now, that's a policy decision. You know what I mean? But we at least need to be clear that we're like we're behind. So we're not. Is is there's no group somewhere in the government secretly hacking into Russia to try to sow discourse? And I'm obviously not an expert. Yeah, Yeah. I would say we probably we have the capabilities, but we are not using them. And I certainly um, don't think we are as aggressively influencing the information landscape as our adversaries are. And I will say, in part for good reason, because we don't believe in meddling in other people's elections. I don't know that the answer here is to you know meddle versus meddle, but I I don't know that we're always 
the, let me put it this way. I don't know that we're, that we're prepared to block what they're doing. Because if we're not going to do it back at them, which I don't know that that's right, the, the right solution, we at least need to be better prepared to debilitate their capabilities and block them from doing these bad things to us. Do you think that on the world stage, we are perceived as kind of a laughing stock joke at the moment? Because <laughs> when you think about it, you know, you've got, you know, Russia's messing with everything uh, from social media to, you know, every topic and issue. Um, you've got, you know, we're out there with North, well, we're not, Trump's out there with North Korea and like patting Kim Jong-un on the back and giving him all the things he wants and not getting anything in return and except for his ego being boosted. Uh, it, it, you know, you you look at all this stuff, uh, even with China and artificial intelligence, you know, they can't used to, they used to send Chinese delegates to Silicon Valley to see what we're up to and we didn't go the other way. Um, are we kind of being perceived at this point as like the, the laughing stock? Here's why I'm optimistic. Um, I need some optimism. I, yeah, let me let me give it a shot here. I think repeatedly in our history, and I'm not a professional historian, but repeatedly in our history, we've been caught a little bit off guard. So if you even look at the beginning of our republic with the XYZ affair with the French, if you look at the Second World War, we were not we were not ready for that. Um, the Russians went into space first, but we but at every point we've 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 zoomed ahead. We have when we've collectively decided to get our act together and move. And I'm totally confident that we can do that. The reason we won't be able to do that under Trump is he, you know, it's always going to be about Donald Trump. So he will undermine everything in his path. And he, he's just, he's not a president who can organize or make things happen. He can get himself to go meet with Kim Jong-un, but he can't mobilize the resources and people in this country to get something big done. So we're going to have to wait till we have another president. But I'm actually confident we're ha we are in the middle of our wake-up moment right now. This is like, you know, uh, this is the, the split. Nick moment right now, and we will. I'm confident we'll get there, but um, you know, I think it's something for people who, you know, maybe are sort of sympathetic to Donald Trump or see the economy doing well. They really need to think about um, we're, we're as a country, we're actually not going to make ourselves great until we get someone who can cooperate and work. You know, work with a bunch of people to get something done. So speaking of 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 getting things done and and the election and so on. Uh, who do you think could be the 2020 contender for <laughs> like, just, uh, is there anyone that comes to mind or, or do you think that we're going to have 17 people on the stage on the Demo democratic side and there's going to be someone that we've never thought would possibly run? I'm kind of in the latter category. Got it. So, and this isn't a dodge. I mean, I know, I know as much as anybody else, right? Yeah. I know all the people that are getting, you know, th that are thinking about it and all that stuff. I do think, but I think you just said on the most important thing, there are going to be a lot of people on that stage. And part of why Donald Trump was successful was he stood out. And I believe we could potentially be in the same situation where a Democrat comes into the race out of nowhere, out of left field, um, and is so fresh, so different, so compelling, hopefully in a good way, but they could also be disruptive in a negative way. And if they can, if they can grab the attention and suck up the oxygen, um, you know, we could we could see a similar phenomenon as we saw with Trump, where people are just unable to take them down because you have a bunch of uh, people who are used to operating in a certain way, and when that's disrupted, it's really hard to get a foothold. Frankly, you are listening to Inside the Hive. 
with Nick Bilton. This week's episode is brought to you by Warner Brothers Television and DC Entertainment's acclaimed drama series, Black Lightning. From executive producers Salim Akil, Amara Brock Akil, and Belanti Productions for The CW. What are people saying about Black Lightning? The New York Times declares that Black Lightning is pulp with a purpose, while the LA Times calls it a thrilling, smart, and pop culture savvy series that bounces between present day politics and escapist fantasy. And The Atlantic says that Black Lightning offers what is arguably the most timely and nuanced portrayal of the internal conflicts that can arise within African-American community and the subject of racial justice. For your Emmy consideration in all categories. Do you think that, okay, let's just say that there's someone that comes along and, uh, and actually you know, stands up and beats Trump. I actually do believe that there's a pretty good chance he's going to win in 2020. I think that not because I think he's doing a good job, because I think that most Democratic voters are too pathetic to go to the polls. And I say pathetic because I think it's pathetic. You know, I mean, in Hillary's in the Hillary Trump 2016, 91 million red, I mean, eligible voters didn't vote. Uh, majority of those people. Well, and a lot of people voted for third party candidates. And we, we I don't like talking about it because it sounds like an excuse. Like it's yeah, our yeah, fault yeah. that we couldn't get those people to support us. But when you look at Al Gore's numbers with Ralph, N- Ralph Nader took a lot of heat in 2000. Ralph Nader's proportion was a lot smaller than the third party voting in, in 16 as well. So, um, so do you watch Handmaid's Tale? I haven't yet. I know there's this moment. So, so I, it's, I, 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 I asked this question and I, and I'm just curious your, your, your response tonight. And it's, it's difficult because it's like, oh, it's Hollywood and it's drama and blah, blah, blah. But I, I'm, you know, we're in D.C. and I was walking around yesterday. I was at the Senate building and walked by the Capitol. And you think – you look at these massive, beautiful buildings that have been here for for decades uh, and you think – and the thing that went through my mind is can they survive Trump? Can yeah. this it, Can this country survive the Trump administration and the things that it is doing to – attack the media uh to you know if he potentially loses in 2020 is he going to to step down you know yeah you know he looked at he looked at what happened with china when uh president yi said that he's now going to be president for you know forever potentially and thinks that's a great idea you know can the you you can the institutions and the constitutions and the those buildings survive yeah this man so I I I definitely believe that they can, but that's a separate um, thing from Trump getting reelected. He might, you know. Um, I think actually your bigger question: if Trump tries to become a, a dictator for life or something like that, I think that has more to do with the Republican Party, yeah, and, but, and but, its conscience than the Democratic Party. But okay, let's just so, so let's just play out a hypothetical kind of Hollywood situation here. So yeah. the Republican Party, so you know, uh, let's just say there's some sort of terror attack, and Trump says, "I have to be president." You know, we're not going to have an election, and and so on. The Republican Party would stand behind him. I think, uh, unfortunately, based on their behavior so far, I think that's the case. I think this is where, look, the the president has made enemies and people are not willing to speak out right now because they think it's not appropriate. But the Supreme Court would have an ability to intervene. Our federal law enforcement apparatus would have 
the not just the choice, but would actually be ordered to intervene if that were the case. And and that's where I I am I'm confident that there's enough strength within these institutions to withstand him. But I do worry that we're a lot more damage is going to be done. And if Trump is reelected, you know, further and further damage, not just in the people's confidence or belief in these institutions, which is the core of democracy, but there are also these places are bleeding. You know, this, you know, I, I, I worry our law enforcement and our, you know, they can't even hire people to work in these places because nobody wants to be part of what Trump is doing. So um, even, even a lot of conservatives don't want to because they recognize um, everybody who comes into his world gets chewed up and spat back out again. So, um, so I am, I am optimistic. I, I really do believe that we're going to be okay, but, um, but there's a part of you that sometimes worries a little bit. Yeah, I do. I, I just worry the Republicans are going to let him do enough damage. And, and the other, actually, the other interesting thing here is the Congress, I have to say, has just really given up so much authority. You know, they're an equal branch of government. And today it's like the Republicans have made themselves into a rubber stamp. I mean, they'll literally say, we won't do X, Y, or Z until the president basically tells us what to do. I mean, I remember back in the day, there were members of Congress from both parties that would have, that would have, you know, uh, seized up if they even heard that. Why why do you think that's happened? Because they, because our political system, the way it's structured right now, between the media and the and fundraising, you if you are not, and we're seeing this in these primaries, if you are not in line with the president, you will be punished. Um, and I think there's a t- there's almost a tyranny of the mob um, nowadays. Frankly, look, I I worked for the Dean campaign, which I think was the first social media campaign. Right? It it was and has been amazing to see how the internet has created a way for so many people to get involved in campaigns for us to crowdsource candidates. But I think we're starting to see some of the downside of that, which is that a narrow set of people can dictate. You know, we 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 get upset about. Um, you know, how, how far the Republican Party has been pulled to the right. It's because a narrow set of people have so much leverage within the political system. And then to your point, not enough people participate. But I think the more extreme certain people get, the more other voters just get alienated. And th- this is why I just think we have to get all money out of politics because it, it, it neither way works when you have a how, few people how would giving the, a lot or, you know, how would or the, the crowd. How would it work to get all money out of politics? I mean, we have to amend the Constitution, but I don't think our political process will get better until we do that. And do you think that will ever happen? I think if the Democratic Party decided that this is something we need to track and push for and get done, irregardless of what it means electorally, I think we could get it done, but it'll take like 10, 20 years. How, how would that actually work logistically? Would it be that everyone gets an equal amount of airtime or? Yeah. I mean, I, this is where I'm not an expert. There are people have theories, you know, you have to collect a certain number of signatures or something like that to get airtime. You know, there's a bunch of different ways to approach it, but you know, I know in our, I'll give you an example of this. We were talking about in our primary um, I think our I think our, the worst thing we can do is let Trump drive the narrative because he will he will the entire election will be about him. That's how he wins. We will not as Democrats be able to prove to voters why we can do anything to help them, why we're on their side, why we're pulling for them. Um, all the money will be in reacting to Trump in the Democratic primary. You will have a financial incentive as a candidate to constantly take on and react to Trump. That's the kind of danger. There isn't a marketplace right now 
to sort of share ideas, to talk about what you're going to do for voters. There's just a marketplace for reacting. When you think about, and I, I don't want to talk about the Hillary campaign too much, but uh, just one question actually on this is when you think about the campaign um, in the and you lay there in bed at night, what is the moment that you think about? When I think about Hillary, when the, I think- the, the, I'm sure that there was there like a a moment that kind of always stands out yeah. in your mind when you're like walking down the street or when you're laying in bed or you know waiting for the train or the Uber <laughs> that you're just you know that goes back and you think about that moment. Yeah, you know, I, I think about you know what I was thinking about this week because there's all this new news about Comey. I remember when he did his first press conference. The one right before? They- this was the one in, what was it, early July? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And our our numbers in Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota is a state we don't talk about a lot, but it's right in that family there. Pennsylvania really took a hit. And um, they then recovered. Um, but... It's funny, people have sort of criticized, like, we use data too much. I, I think some of that is um, is from a misunderstanding, you know, that there's a that you're either running a grassroots campaign or you're running a data-driven campaign. I think you need to run both, you know what I'm saying? But all that is to say, I we, we saw that we had a weakness as a campaign, and that weakness came back. And lo and behold, it was, again, because of James Comey, and I think I think if 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 I we could have imagined that he, that this could happen again, I think we would have done a lot of things differently. And one of the ironies for me is we were really worried about Russia and everything they were doing, and I think for good reason yeah, they were yeah. actively sort of assaulting the campaign. But the irony is, I think what really did us in was was Comey, or that 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 cost us a few points, and you know we lost by less than a point basically in those three states. Um, and so again, the warning sign was there, and I I just I just wish like I w- when we recovered that my mind had been more focused on what if this happens again? What you know where where what would I wish I had done if this happened again? After the election. Um do you, as a campaign manager, do you, do you just, is it like you, you're on a treadmill going 10 miles an hour and you just jump off and you stop <laughs> and you go home and, or is it that, is it, does it wind down slowly? That's a great question. It, it, normally you keep running at 10 miles an hour for a month or two and then it does just stop. This wasn't like that. Uh, uh, so there was, you know, pro- I, I, everybody got let go right before Thanksgiving and I let myself go. I didn't want to stay on after I had told other people they couldn't get paid either. So I took myself off, but I would say for a good two months after that, it was almost full time just dealing with stuff, you know, trying to get our staff on their feet and get them, find them jobs. Um, the press was like pretty relentless and you don't, and it's funny in a campaign, you have all this press staff and you can kind of manage that when you're on your own. It's like, you're, you're just it's like you and your cell phone. It's kind of lonely. Um, you know, we all, we stuck together and we helped each other out. But, um, so I would, uh, this is going to sound crazy. It wasn't until the beginning of this year that I oh, wow. felt like I was finally able to, 
I was finally in control of my own life again, to be honest with you. So, so campaigns are incredibly emotional. Was there a moment where you cried or anything like that? <laughs> like after, after the results or was it just shell shocked or? You know what? I, um, I sometimes I wonder if that moment's going to come in five years. <laughs> so no, I haven't had that, but that's not to say like, oh, I'm a tough guy. Yeah, like yeah. I can take it. I honest to God wonder. I think the other thing was like, I did the I did the um, 08 campaign with her, and I was from the beginning right till the end. Um, I feel like I came in pretty eyes wide open, um, and I knew it was gonna be hard. I thought we were gonna. I thought it was more likely than not we'd lose when I started because it was a third term. That's really hard. You know, Donald Trump sort of deluded us all. Like, yeah. oh, he's so crazy. It'll be harder for him to win. Um, you know, and I didn't. I didn't know if I'd be there through the whole cycle, right? So I think I kind of went in with like expectations that it would be pretty tough, and I think that helps. Like I, I wasn't. I didn't sort of whistle my way into the campaign, um, but I, I think it'll. I, everybody who had done presidential campaigns, winning and losing, before me that I talked to afterwards said this to me: like it will take years to kind of mentally and physically probably kind of iron this out of yourself. It'll be like 2025. You'll be getting an ice cream and yeah. you'll just start crying. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and someone will be like, what's wrong with What's Robbie wrong right with now? that crazy person? Yeah. <laughs> this is Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. This week's episode is brought to you by the acclaimed hit comedy Mom from Warner Brothers Television for CBS. TV Insider calls Mom one of network TV's more memorable, gritty sitcoms, while USA Today proclaims it has long excelled at balancing deep emotional moments about people in crisis with sharp humor. And the New York Times says the sitcom often ventures into serious material without becoming overly maudlin. It's largely driven by the chemistry and camaraderie between Allison Janney and Anna Faris. For your Emmy considerations. All right, we have a, a few minutes left. So, uh, uh, so you just mentioned the media, and um, and one of the feelings I have, and I work in the media, um, but I also witness it. You know, last night I was staying in my hotel room and uh, was exhausted and couldn't be bothered to actually get up to grab my laptop, and I saw the remote control, and I was like, yeah, "Let me turn the TV on." And I we don't have cable at home. We never have. I never watch TV, and it landed on Fox, and Giuliani was on talking to Laura Ingram, and. It was just, just nonsense, all of it. Then I switched to MSNBC and more nonsense. And I just was, and then CNN, and then I was like, well, I'm getting up and getting my laptop. And, uh, and of course, went on social media, which is even more nonsense. And do you think that, you know, we have this, this amendment that gives us the right to a free press and free speech and so on, but it seems like, as with everything American, we do everything to the extreme, right. we have taken it to the extreme. Right. Do, you, do you feel that way? Yeah, so I actually think what part of what we saw on the Clinton campaign was <clears throat> I think Hillary, and objectively I think a lot of Republicans would agree with this, would have been an enor- incredibly competent president. She would have yes. she would have got and and when you look at like what she did as senator and what she did you know as secretary of state, she just did a good job. Um, and the system, like experience, competence, all these things, it doesn't reward that. Now, that's never been the key to winning president, right? It's about the person, not their, not you know, not their resume. Um, and and that that's an important warning to people who run in the future. But I do think, to your point, we've get, we've gotten to a place where it's it's way more important how controversial you are, how much you drive clicks, more than like. 
are you actually being intellectually honest or have you proven any ability to get anything done whatsoever? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, I don't know what to do about it because I don't think the answer is like a truth police or, you know, a public option for the press or something like that. I, I, I don't, I don't believe in that. Um, I, I, again, I will say all of this is driven by money and, um, you know, we did used to have rules in place for public broadcasting, uh, or rather for, for, for broadcast television about how many stations you could own, about you can't own stations and newspapers. We used to have those things. And some of what is going on, I believe, is correlated with that. Now, the internet throws a huge wrench in it. But one thing I've been talking about, and I don't know the answers here, is I think we may want to go back to thinking about how did we set up the broadcast landscape in the 30s with radio and television? I think it was the 30s. Um, and the and now, and then go to the internet and say, it, I believe the internet's a public space. And I believe that the public has the right to impose certain rules around you know, the quality of journalism, not on what you say, not on your beliefs. And also, we can't allow a few people, like Sinclair, we can't allow a few people to own a bunch of it. And frankly, a lot of this, I think, was changed in the Clinton administration, right? Yeah. Like, I think that was a mistake. And so uh, I guess where I would come at it is, and I, and by the way, I think privacy is a huge part of this as well, because the internet has opened up a way to target us as individuals. We don't have access to everything. We have access to what the platforms show to us. And, 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 we, and by the way, by giving up our information, companies or causes have the ability to target us with certain messages. So I think we need to go to a place where people are entitled and empowered to see everything or see as much as possible. They can't be, they can't be targeted into a silo. And secondly, that we have rules of the road. So nobody has too much control. I think, I think that would make a difference. No, I think, I think you're absolutely right. I think that, you know, the, the tech companies should be leading the way here, the social media companies and, and and trying to come up with solutions. Uh, Actually, let me. It's so interesting bringing this up. So I slightly disagree with that. Oh, really? I think that's where the problem exists. This is where I talk about Congress just sort of giving up its power. I think we should be deciding those things. We keep going to Facebook and saying, "What are you going to do?" And I'm sort of looking at Congress and saying, "No, what are you going to do?" I think we as people should decide what privacy means. That's not for Twitter to decide. That's for us to decide. I think we should just impose those rules. Um, anyway, that's what. No, I I, 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 agree, I agree. I think that you know, uh, Twitter and Facebook like the media and you know like politicians you mentioned it's all about the money um and the clicks and the this that and the other and uh there's no incentive to change it and uh it's pretty terrifying you know especially when you look at the cambridge analytica stuff and um it's uh uh hopefully that you know people get pissed off enough that they actually do something and i think you're starting yeah. to see that happen a little bit um all right last couple of questions uh when was the last time you spoke to hillary we text a lot. You text a lot. We, Do you guys yeah. send animated so gifs we, and things? Or um, she does the emojis. What's her she favorite emoji? emoji. Um, she does like the thumbs up or like the what's the thank the, you? The, with, like, the, the little the hands praying. That? Yeah, 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 hands together praying. Um, so I haven't talked to her in a few months, like on the phone, but we text. And what uh, is she up to now? Um, so she uh, she's been working with a bunch of different you know so called resistance groups. Um, and uh, I, I, I know she's working on a second book as well. Um, and uh, I don't know. I think her – I honestly believe her best days are ahead. Hmm. Um, I think she has 
I think like the rest of us, she's still that election fog is still clearing. Yeah. But I think when it does, you know, we need more superheroes in the world. And I don't know that there's anybody literally on the planet better equipped to fight for certain people and causes around the planet than she is. And she'll never run again, right? I don't think so. I don't for for no other reason. I don't think she wants to put herself through that. Again. Yeah, it seems like it's brutal. Um, but to, but to that point, I think she can do this other stuff and make a huge difference. Uh, so last question. So I'm not going to ask you if you could have done something differently. What would you do? Yeah. My question is a little different. If you, let's just say that uh, that it's twenty it's 2019 and um, I'm actually the candidate running for the Democratic <laughs> Party for president. What advice would you give me? Yeah, so I've been giving people a few different pieces of advice. The first one is campaigns are different now. So it's not about going and building a national donor network and meeting all the insiders. It is about building a credible voice in the online space that people want to follow and want to share. Because when, you, because when you're in that space, when you have that, um, you will be able to send your message direct to voters. They'll help you amplify it. That will build a protective layer against the attacks that are going to come. And you'll have all the resources you need. Um, so that's that's the most important thing. Secondly, as I said, you have to, you, you cannot fall into what I call the Trump trap, which is um, it's all about him. Yep. And you're reacting to him all the time. And then the, the, the last piece of advice is, um, that I've been giving to people is your resume and your persona or persona is not the right word, but basically your resume or your bio is not a message. Um, you need to tell a story about where we've been, where we are now, and where we're going to go. Um, and you and your supporters need to be heroes. You need to, you need to call out the villains and you need to be clear about who you're going to fight for. And What's, who you're gonna fight what is against. the message for the democratic party? Is it, is it guns? Is it healthcare? Is it, is it socioeconomic? You know, what what is the message you think that gets well, through? Well, I think the message is that people are hurting right now and um, our economy and in some ways our society are just not working for people. And a lot of people are getting really rich and a lot of people are missing out in a huge way. And Donald Trump is actually part of that problem. So um, it's everything from affording your health care to seeing your wage rise to just being treated decently and fairly by our society. That's what Democrats stand for. And we have a lot of policies to deal with that, but that's fundamentally what we stand for. Donald Trump has stood for everything that's wrong, for 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 pillaging our government, enriching himself. He is the most corrupt president in our history. And so when we talk about the swamp, Trump is the biggest, baddest swamp monster that's ever existed. And he's going to try to make this you know, he's, he's going to try to try to throw all kinds of chum in the water to get us talking about kneeling at football games and all this other stuff. All of it is a ruse to cover his corruption. I'll give you an example of this. When we were at the convention, we had a woman speaking named Cheryl Langford. I'm sure nobody knows who that is. She had taken the her, – her husband had a heart attack. He was serving in the Army in Iraq. She took his death benefit and invested it in a Trump University tuition to support her family. And it was a fraud. Nobody ever called her back. Nobody did anything for her. And then Kieser, so this was supposed to be our big speech, right? Then Kieser Khan spoke and gave an incredible speech. But what did Trump do? He didn't attack Cheryl Lankford. Mm -hmm. He attacked Kieser Khan. Yeah. 
he didn't attack the people suing Trump University. He attacked the judge with a racist comment because it's better for him to ha- for us to be uh, you know having a conversation about racism than about whether he cheats people than about his corruption. And that's where we're going to have to turn the attention. And it's going to be incredibly hard. We always fall into this trap and we have not figured out how to drive a message. But but that message has to be about the voters and their lives and the big ideas we have to make things better and fairer. But and how, do you, and drive how do you respond to the message of, of, you know, of, for example, immigration right now, you know, w- rather than talking about... Uh, the most evil person. To, uh, I, I, I kind of I have a really hard time picking the most evil person. It's some some weeks it's Scott Pruitt for me. This week it could be Jeff Sessions. But you know, but but when we're talking about, they're literally taking one and two and three year olds away from their 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 parents at the border, and and Trump is out there, you know, creating you know fake movies to show to Kim Jong Un and and right. and attacking the media literally from from a despot's like right. I mean just attacking right. the media is the worst thing on planet earth and then Bradley Parscale his his uh campaign manager for 2020 is saying that Jim Acosta from CNN should have his 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 right. press credentials revoked cuz they don't like what he's saying I mean how in those instances do you just not respond I mean I what- think and look this is let me be clear we lost the last campaign. So like, but the, you, I, I want to be the first one to say, this is really hard. Like, yeah. I'm not sitting here being like, I know all the answers. I'm really but good But you know, at this. you've been through it. You, yeah, you, no. I, 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 where I have gotten to is, yes, on occasion, we have to move on and we have to... Here, let me put it this way. The person who wins controls the narrative. Responding to everything Trump does is not controlling the narrative. It is conceding the narrative. And we have to spend more time talking about the gross corruption in this administration. Think about the fact that Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner, who are public employees of this country, are making tens of millions of dollars. 88 million. They are brokering business deals. They, and I would argue it is going to come out, our foreign policy has been influenced by by their business interests, they have they have made choices about our public affairs based on what is in their financial interest and what will get them loans and money and investment from foreign countries. That is going to I, I'm sure that will come out. That is outrageous. But if we never talk about that, it's never we're never going to drive that contrast. And Trump will always win the argument. So when or actually let me put it this way, he will always choose what we're talking about, and that's just as dangerous. So when so from a uh, it's one thing for a political candidate to not talk about it, but from we have a responsibility as citizens not to talk about it too, right? So when when he's bitching and moaning about kneeling at football games and this, that, and the other, we should be talking about something different? I think what we should say is this is another perfect example of how the president is trying to divide um, uh, uh, d- divide us and distract us. What really matters is what's best for these families out here who are losing their job, whose who, whose wages have not been rising. Our country is richer than it's ever been, and and people's wages are not rising with it. They can't they they can't take time off to have a child. You know, th- these are, that's where we need to bring this, and then we need to call out that they have a president right now who is driven by what enriches him. I'm sure part of what's going on with North Korea is that he wants to build a hotel, hotel. there. Or something, yeah, yeah, you know what I mean, yeah. Um, so anyway, I, I, I think unless we keep the focus there, we are very much in danger of losing in 2020. 
On that note, Robbie, thank you so much for taking the time to chat from uh, inside the swamp today. Uh, this <laughs> has been you. fascinating. Uh, yeah, thank you so much. My pleasure. But I am optimistic. I just got to say I, that. You, I, I need some optimism. I, this show always ends with with uh, with despair, but I definitely it's, it's good to have a little optimism. So thank you. It's going to get better. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> it's going to get better. <laughs> Thanks to my guest today, Robbie Mook. If you enjoyed this conversation, and I'm sure you did, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. That's me. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a glowing five-star review while you are there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work, my editors at Vanity Fair, and thanks, of course, to my sponsors, Warner Brother Television, Young Sheldon, Black Lightning, and Mom. Please support them the same way you support this podcast. I will see you all next week.